You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, as we bow our heads this morning, speak to our hearts. Speak through me. At this time in earth's history, may you impress upon us the message that we need to hear and understand. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The message today is entitled, Unique Purpose. A unique purpose. Have you ever given someone a unique message to give, even here at camp meeting? I don't know where you are. Maybe you're in F loop, D loop, C loop, or D loop, F loop. H loop, G loop, lots of loops. And you're staying up there on F loop, but you've got someone who's on D loop and you want to get a message to them, I don't know, maybe. And maybe you ask your child to go down there to D loop and go and look for the caravan with whatever wording on the side in plot number something, it's a friend of yours, and pass a message on. Go to the main hall, you'll see them in the cafeteria. And when you see them, take this message to them. I'm giving you a set job, a particular job, today, right now, and off you go. A unique purpose. As we've looked at the lives of various reformers or various pioneers throughout this week, we see men and women who had a unique purpose in life. This photo here is taken inside the St. Mary's Church in Lutterworth, England, and it was in this church where John Wycliffe pastored. It was inside this church where he he served the people in the Lutterworth Parish. It was actually in that church where he completed his translation of the Bible. It was in that church where he passed away. God raised him up for a unique time and with a unique purpose in our sacred history. Alan White and other writers refer to him as the morning star of the Reformation. He had the right learning environment at Oxford University from the age of 14. He grew up, and he was blessed because if you know a little bit about church history of the late, uh, of that time period, you'll know that there was a time where there wasn't one pope, there wasn't two, but there was three. And they hated John Wycliffe but he was able to take advantage of the dissension amongst his opponents. And God was able to bless him, in a sense, with relative peace while they're fighting. And while they're fighting amidst their fights, he's able to continue his work, and he had a unique purpose and was blessed with the circumstances of his time that he never was a martyr. He was able to finish his translation of the Bible and God used him in a mighty way to kickstart the Reformation. Martin Luther comes along a hundred odd years later. Born Eisleben, studies in Erfurt, works in Wittenberg, And Martin Luther is very uniquely placed. He has political connections with some of the leaders there in modern-day Germany. To the extent that he's politically protected from anyone who's trying to get him. 
He's also uniquely placed because just about 40 years previous, you have the invention of the Gutenberg Press. When John Gutenberg invented his press, he probably had no idea that his press, his printing press, would be a key factor in the Reformation that was about to come. But when Martin Luther writes his 95 Theses and he writes his other pamphlets and, and tracts, because the printing press had been invented 40 or so years previous, it enables those ideas to not just be whispers, but it enables those ideas to go like wildfire. He was in a unique position. And with his position came immense responsibility. You know, all of these people, I was talking to someone this week, all of these people are not faultless. They have some serious flaws if we judge them through our 21st century eyes. But Martin Luther, I believe, had a particular role and function to play in the rediscovery of truth over the last five, six hundred years. And he did that. What role and what purpose does God have you here on planet Earth? Does God have you here in the Michigan Conference? Does God have you here in your local church? What's your role? What's your personal, individual responsibility to the cause of God? We have a corporate or a collective or a church-wide responsibility that God has asked us to do as a body of people. But in addition to that, we have an individual one as well. We have an individual one. Life doesn't always turn out as we want it to. We don't always have the life that we envision, but even if life doesn't transpire as we want it to, even if the circumstances of our life seem to go off a little bit, God still is able to take those circumstances to turn them around and to have a blessing. I think I shared a little bit of this story earlier this week. In the middle there, you've got one of the best, worst kings of England. Controversial figure. King Henry VIII. And there's his six wives. First one, he divorces. The second one, he beheads her. You can go to the place today in the Tower of London and they've put a little memorial there, on the spot where his second wife was beheaded. Third wife, she dies. Fourth wife, divorced. she's divorced too. Fifth wife, she's beheaded as well. So now he needs a new wife. His eyes catch on to a lady whose name was Catherine. He's in his 50s. She's in her late 20s or very early 30s. The last thing you wanted as a 29, 30, 31-year-old young lady was to have the eyes of King Henry VIII fall upon you. Definitely by now. Beheaded, divorced, beheaded. Like, you really don't want to catch his eye. You want that to be a bad hair day when you go out and he get, he's in your presence. You really want to be looking your worst. Whatever. But she catches his eye. Probably caught his eye, maybe, I don't know. I don't know this period of history in too much detail. Maybe she caught his eye before the other wife was beheaded, who knows. 
likely. She catches his eye and they get married. I'm sure he didn't propose to her. I remember talking, well, I've got to be careful. I remember talking to somebody in my past life. No, in, in, in the past, not my past life. In my past. And I said to them, oh, how did you propose to your wife? And, and he looked back and he says, I didn't propose. I was like, really? And he looked back with this kind of smirk on his face. Maybe not smirk is the right word. He looked back with this very proud look on his face like, I didn't propose. I told her what the date was going to be. Some of you ladies are thinking, glad that wasn't me. He told her. I'm sure when King Henry VIII comes to his sixth wife, he's not asking her, oh, will you marry me? Getting down on one knee and Romeo and Juliet. He's, it's, it's not quite like that. Anyway, one thing leads to another and they get married. They get married. There's his family tree. Tells you where, which children come from who. And so he marries Catherine Parr. You see her down there. She was widowed by him because she's the only one who outlived him. She was a fascinating character and someone who was quite rather, I would say, intelligent. And she, interestingly, was a staunch Protestant. She was the first Queen of England who actually wrote and published something. She wrote a book of prayers. Initially under a pseudonym, then she wrote another book under her name. I mean, a woman who's a publisher was groundbreaking in the mid-1500s. And she marries King Henry VIII, and by now, if, if you just go back well, by now, she has three stepchildren. From Catherine of Aragon, there's Mary. From Anne Boylan, there is um, Elizabeth. And then from one of the other ones, you have Edward as well. Three stepchildren. She doesn't have any children herself, which itself is a problem if you're married to King Henry VIII. Because he needs children. He needs heirs to the throne. And she doesn't actually have any with him. She later had a, a child with her next husband, died in childbirth. She doesn't have a child with him, but she has three stepchildren. Three stepchildren. Mary, Elizabeth, and Edward. Imagine being married to King Henry VIII. You've got this megalomaniac for a husband who's killed, 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 killed. Broke away, started his own church just so he could get divorced. And there you are locked in a loveless marriage and you've got three stepchildren that are not yours. One of them is only about five years younger than you. The other one's a youngish teenager and the other one's a young boy. Loveless marriage, three stepchildren, and you're the ruler, queen, I mean, your husband's the ruler of the country. But she makes her life, and she makes something out of her life, I believe, I believe, it's fascinating, I read the book, the, the one that was <laughs> Sisters in Arms, is when I really uh, caught this story when, 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 when I read it, and I was like, wow. Here she is, as the Queen of England, living a life where she's got to balance her husband. She's a staunch Protestant. She's an educated woman, which itself was a threat to be educated and married to the king. Because he is the king. And if she's too forthright, if she's too bold in her opinions, if she's too opinionated, she knows what's going to happen. And when you actually look at the history of her life, there was a one 
instance where the king, they believe, had authorized for her to be arrested, which would then lead to her being killed. And at the last minute, because King Henry VIII was a little bit of a, of a, dra a drama king, at the last minute he intervenes and says, no, 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 okay, don't arrest her, don't arrest her. And they believe what led to the king wanting to arrest her was her staunch Protestant beliefs and her challenging him and, and kind of debating and parlaying with her husband. And some of her advisors were saying, you're pushing it a bit too far now. You're pushing it a bit too far. I know you like to go back and forth with your husband or the king, but you're on dangerous ground now. And she was able to kind of balance that pushing him a little bit and being bold and forthright and educated and all the rest. And at the same time, just when it was needed most to kind of, yes, my Lord, she survives. And during the short time she's married to him, she pours herself into teaching. Elizabeth, sorry, Mary's gone. She's like 23, 24. She's staunch Catholic and she'll rule England for six years in a bloody reign. But she pours herself into Elizabeth and Edward, Protestantizing her stepchildren, teaching them. After King Henry VIII dies, Mary comes to the throne, got a six-year bloody reign of England when she kills Latimer, Ridley, Cramner, and all of these um, famous reformers. Then she dies. Then Edward comes. Then Elizabeth. Elizabeth will rule England for about 40 or so years. Staunch Protestant. The golden age. And really set England on a trajectory of Protestantism for the next three, four hundred years. She was the queen that was reigning when the Spanish Armada comes to try and capture and take over England back to Catholicism. She was a strong queen of England, single her whole life, never marries, never leaves an heir, but staunchly Protestant, and from which England, I believe, in the 1600s, had the benefits of the, of, of the groundwork that she laid, the 1700s, the Industrial Revolution starts. If you look at the map of Europe, the Industrial Revolution of Europe starts really in England, not in other countries. One of the factors of the Industrial Revolution that they, you'll learn about, when I, when I learned about in school, one of the factors of the Industrial Revolution is what they call the Protestant work ethic. Why did England industrialize first? Well, they don't have 50 holidays a year, that's for one. They're not giving all their money to the church for no reason, is another. And there was a thing called the Protestant work ethic instilled in the country that kind of drove it that way. And when you look at kind of the history of England, and I often wonder, Catherine Parr, she's there married to the king in a loveless marriage to a man who's a megalomaniac that she's going to worry if she's going to die, but she's there in this marriage and she's like, okay, I don't want to be married to this man. It's not a loving relationship. It's not a loving marriage. It's not a great Romeo and Juliet story, but I've got three stepchildren. I can't do anything with the first one, but the second and the third stepchild, I'll do everything I can to, to, uh, to educate and to train up those two stepchildren that I have, and hopefully when I'm gone or in the future, they'll set the course of this country on a right trajectory. Unique purpose. One of these women of history that doesn't really often get the recognition that she is due, but plays a pivotal role, you could argue, in our country. Where are you placed?
and what does God have you there for? And it may be that the circumstances of your life, maybe it's not as dramatic as King Henry and, and, and his courts, but maybe the circumstances of your life, it has not transpired today as you hoped life would transpire. Your work situation hasn't transpired as you hoped. Your family situation hasn't transpired. Or your local church has not panned out as you hoped it would. But even in the midst of that, God is able to take those pieces and turn them around in some form or fashion that only he as a divine maker can and make something good out of it. Unique purpose. When I think of someone who was uniquely placed, I think of Queen Esther. Queen Esther grew up in modern-day Iran, the empire of Persia. Today you can visit the place where they say is the, the home of Queen Esther. There's a Jewish community in Iran today that's one of the oldest Jewish communities in the world. It's shrunk over the last 30 years with you know, the, the recent governments in Iran, but there's still about 10,000 Jews who live there in, in, around in Tehran, which is one of the oldest communities of Jews in the world because they go all the way back to the Persian captivity or Babylonian captivity and then taken over by the Persians. And every year on the same day, they make a pilgrimage to a house. There were many decrees, several decrees there in Persia allowing the Jews to return home. Esther did not return home and so sometimes we conclude and sometimes we you know, come up with a conclusion that Esther maybe was from a family that was comfortable there in Persia. They were comfortable in their captivity so to speak. They did not go back to Jerusalem. Maybe we conclude that maybe they were little backsliders or, or maybe they were just comfortable where they are rather than go back home to Jerusalem. You can draw whatever conclusions you will. But they like it there. They decide not to go home. Esther chapter 2, I believe it is, or chapter 1, you've got the king. He has issues with his wife, so he's looking for another wife. The fair ladies in the kingdom have come there and they audition to be queen. And it's not quite like how you read in my Bible, friends. Amen. It's not quite a beauty pageant where they just come and stand before the king and turn this way or let the light shine on that side of her face. Oh, I like the look of that one. I think I'll marry her. It was a little bit more intimately involved than that. They went in in the evening and came out in the morning. And they weren't playing Uno at night. And the king's like, I'll marry her. Her cousin, Mordecai, says, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Hide it. Hide your identity. Hide you're a Jew. Don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. So she doesn't. The king marries a woman who's got Jewish blood and Jewish heritage with no idea who she is. At that point in Esther's life, it's not some grand uh, plan that one day you will reveal yourself. It's not like, don't tell anyone now because one day you're going to tell. No, no. Don't tell anyone now and just don't tell anyone. So this time period in Esther's life, you would probably characterize by a time period where she's not, as we would use in today's terminology, spiritually on fire. She's become a queen by questionable ethics. She's living without showing her identity. But God still has a plan for her, Amen. 
And there comes that point in Esther chapter 4, we read those verses all the time, where her, 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 um, her people come to her and they say, Esther, who knows if you've become queen for such a time as this? Maybe you're not sure why you became a queen, but now for such a time as this, maybe this is the reason why you're queen. And Esther's like, hmm, maybe. And Esther chapter 4, verse 16, she says, okay, I'll go into the king. And she says, and if I perish, I what? I perish. The circumstances of her spiritual life and her whatever life up until that point may not have been the best, but she comes to herself, she realizes her identity, and she says, I'll go into the king. I'll deliver my people. I'll do what I can. Catherine Parr, her life is not great, but she stands and there's a unique purpose in her life and she does something in that time where she is. God has called us as a church. God has called us as a people. We have a unique purpose as Seventh-day Adventists in the world today. A unique purpose. God has called us to share the gospel message with the world around us. He's called us as the Laodicean church. The Laodicean church, if you drive there to Turkey today and you visit the city of Laodicea, it's in a beautiful plush valley. It just has an air and a dripping of money around the place. And you can see why when God said you're rich and increased with goods, you can just see it. It's there. It's like driving through the, and there's vineyards and it's just, a, it's just, it's just nice. It's a nice place to be. And this was the church that was comfortable where they are. But they had a unique purpose. We as Laodicea, we have a unique purpose to share the gospel message to all the world. And it zeroed in on in Revelation chapter 14 to share the three angels' message with the world today. This unique purpose God has raised us up as a movement for. When we look at the stories of William Miller, and Ellen White, and Joseph Bates, and J.N. Andrews, and S.N. Haskell, and we look at the, the heritage we have, it's for a purpose to share the three angels' message with all the world, because that's the commission. Take this everlasting gospel and preach it to every nation, every kindred, every tongue, and every people. What are we doing? What are you doing to share that message with the world around us? To sharing it during a time when the two beasts of Revelation 13 are, are there. First beast, the papacy, in its strength. Before whom today the kings of the earth and rulers of the earth bow down in obeisance to. Doesn't matter who the president of America is. I know America is very partisan or divided in these days when it comes to Republicans and Democrats and all those issues. And, and it's tense in America right now. More than it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. We're fighting over stuff. But I can tell you one thing. George Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and before them, Bill Clinton. And before him, George Bush. And before him, Ronald Reagan. There's a thread. They fight in public, but one of the first things they all do, your Holy Father, uh, when can I come and see you? Just been elected, when can I come? All of them. That gap 
that we're told about in the book Great Controversy is getting narrower and narrower, and that gap is getting narrower and narrower until soon the hands will reach across the gulf and clasp together. We have a message that we must share, and the sharing is not just a verbal assent to the message. The sharing is the verbal presentation of the message along with a church that actually lives and demonstrates that message. What is your church known for in your community? What are you known for? What is it that people know about us? This possession of a message, this unique message, this unique lifestyle that we should have in public and in private. The three angels' message, the character of the life that we live, it should do something to the way we live our lives that other people can see something about us. Proverbs 16 verse 9, I believe, or verse 7, one of those two verses says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When your ways please God, yeah, I really don't like that guy. Can't stand that guy. But, he's a good guy, I guess. Really disagree with that person. But, can't fault what they do on this street for our community. There's a visible demonstration to how we live. God has called us as a Seventh-day Adventist church to give a specific and a unique message to the world, one that involves sacrifice, one that involves personal sacrifice. Sometimes people say, well, this sounds arrogant or this sounds elitist, and it can. And it does sound arrogant or elitist when all we do is say we possess the message and we don't live any type of lifestyle that demonstrates how we have the message ourselves. If we have the message as a church, we should be demonstrating in conjunction with speaking the prophetic truth, we should be demonstrating and living the fruits of the Spirit. It's not either or. It's not that's the meat and that's the milk. It's both and. Yeah, we're sure of our prophetic identity and we're demonstrating that as we live our lives in our community and people can look at us and be like, wow, God has given us a message to share to the world. It should fill us with a sense of responsibility that's almost overwhelming to the point where we're like, I can't do this, we can't do this, unless as a church we do it through the power of God. It's not to get us to pat ourselves on the back. God has given us a unique message, the three angels' message understood in the context of the sanctuary message. We're told in the book Evangelism, page 221, that a correct understanding of the sanctuary is the very foundation of our faith. Because it's through the sanctuary and it's through looking at the holy place and the courtyard and the most holy place that we have this understanding of what's really happening in heaven and what's really happening in the end time event scenario and the Sabbath message that God has given to us that is a unique part of our faith that we've put into our very name, Seventh-day Adventist. That Sabbath message, we understand that different to a Jew or different to a Seventh-day Baptist or different to someone that just reads their Bible and says, oh, I want to have 24 hours of rest. We read it different to them because we understand understand the sanctuary, sorry, the Sabbath, in the context of the sanctuary. 
We understand the Sabbath in the context that it's part of the law of God. And the law of God is in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is in the most holy place. And the most holy place is where the judgment takes place. So we see the Sabbath not just as a day of rest, but we see the Sabbath also as a test that's going to come on God's people at the very end. The sanctuary provides a depth of understanding and meaning to the book of Revelation that there, there isn't there without it. God has given to us this message, this calling that should not give us feelings of pride or eliteness, but it should fill us with a humility. This message to the world you're asking me to give? This message to the millions in Michigan you're asking us to give? This message to our community you're asking us to give? This message that tells the picture of God in the clearest way you're asking me to give? God's like, yeah, I've raised up my people. I've raised up my church for such a time as this. For such a time as this, that's my church. Weak and enfeebled though they may be, for such a time as this, that is my church. God used weak and enfeebled men throughout our Seventh-day Adventist history. One of the things when we were filming on Lineage that was it just stood out to me. When we filmed season one, we traveled around Wittenberg, Geneva, Oxford, Cambridge. Prestigious cities in England and in Europe, and we went to University of Oxford and University of, of, of Cambridge and University of the St. Andrews University. We went to all these preeminent universities where there's statues or, or whatever you want to say of, of the reformers, and we filmed in those places. And it was like from university to university to university to university to university. When we filmed Adventist history, we went from farm to farm to random house on a Portland street to another random house in Topsom, Maine to a random house that's now become a country club in Paris Hill, Maine. It was a stark contrast that just kind of, it just hit me. University, 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 farm, 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 farm. The Reformation was started by great men of learning and education. God used them in that way at his time. But when he looked down onto planet Earth and he said, I'm going to raise up a church that's going to give the three angels' message to the world. Where did he go? He went to a farm in Lowhampton, New York. He went to another house there in Maine. He went to the home of Ellen White. He went to these removed and these isolated places and he wasn't looking for men of education so to speak or learning he was looking for people men and women who were humble to take the responsibility that God was about to put on them and know that it wasn't through their power they could do it it was only through the power of God Ellen White was hesitant to take the call because she's like me me you sure you want to use me and the way our church was birthed in many ways is going to be the way the work, I believe, is going to be finished. God is going to take the rank and file in our church. 
men and women who are humble, men and women who recognize their, in a sense, uselessness, but they know that when they're with God, they're going to be useful. He takes people that may not have the education of Martin Luther or John Wycliffe or Tyndale, but he takes men and women and children and says, I'm going to use them powerfully to take this message because that's who I'm going to use at the very end because it's going to demonstrate my power when I preach and I share through them. Michigan needs to re be reached. Your town needs to be reached. The world needs to be reached. We need to be a demonstration of the message God has entrusted to us in our lifestyle and how we share it as well. How many of you want to say to God, Lord, I want to be faithful in my part of the vineyard to share this message with the world around me? Let me see your hands. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, just like you raised up people in the past with a unique purpose. You've raised up your church today, Lord, with a unique purpose. And it may be, Lord, that some of us in our life have not been faithful to the calling you have entrusted with us personally. But like Esther, we want to come to our senses and say, Lord, today you've called me into the kingdom for such a time as this. Use me, mold me, shape me, and take me as an empty vessel to be used by you. Lord, bless this congregation here. Bless the wider congregation, Lord, that is watching. Bless the wider congregation represented through the homes that we represent here, for the churches that we represent here. And Lord, I pray that you would take us and use us in a mighty way in 2022. Lord, we're looking forward to that day when you'll come. And we pray, Lord, that you may come soon. Keep us faithful to then, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.